Hello all. Apologies for the lack of an episode last week. Had some important real life stuff to be getting on with. Never fear, I am back once more to cover an individual I promised I'd get back to all the way in the distant past of episode 3. That and my mother has accused my podcast of being something of a sausage fest, so I present to you the savage, scando-slavic saint herself, Saint Olga of the Rurikid Dynasty. Welcome to the History Raid Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kovach. Today's topic, the sanctified, savage, and scary Saint Olga of Kiev. Olga was born in Peskov in modern-day Russia, sometime between 890 and 925 AD. At this time, Peskov was part of the proto-Russian state of Kievan Rus. If you'd like to know more about early Russian history uh, and of the Kievan Rus, I have a podcast episode on that exact subject, Russia's Viking Origins, which I'd encourage you to check out if you want to know more about the family Olga would ultimately find herself married into, the Rurikid dynasty. By the way, the fact that Olga's birth date can only be narrowed down to a 35-year period is the result of rather poor records that ex existed at the time, with Russ and Greek chroniclers disagreeing about various dates and events in her life. However, unlike her future father-in-law Rurik, the founder of the Rurikid dynasty, we can be pretty certain she did actually exist, so that's nice. Little is known about Olga's marriage to Rurik's son Igor, the ruler of the Kievan Rus, uh, other than the fact that they had a single son, Stanislav, who was believed to have been born in 945 AD in Kiev, the, capita the capital of Kievan Rus and the modern-day capital of Ukraine. The date of her son's birth suggests that the later suggested dates of her birth are more likely to be accurate. If she was born in 890, she would have been 55 when she gave birth to her son, which, while not a complete impossibility, given that most women start going through menopause between the ages of 45 and 52, it is very unlikely Olga was in her 50s in 945. Also, the exact reason for her marriage to Igor is not known. It's suspected that she might have been born into a influential family in the Puskov region, and that her marriage to Igor might have been a move on the part of Rurik, the, the first king of the Rus princedom, to solidify support for himself in the local region. 945, the year of her son's birth, would mark another major event in her life, namely the murder of her husband Igor at the hands of a Slavic tribe called the Drevlians in modern-day Ukraine. The Drevlians were subjects of Kievan Rus, and as a result had to pay regular tribute to Igor in the form of valuable goods like furs and slaves. At this time, the process for the collection of this tribute was very primitive, with Igor himself having to go and visit the Drevlians in order to ensure they paid what they were owed. However, it would seem that due to some form of mistake, or an act of greed on Igor's part, uh, the prince would e end up demanding more 
than the agreed amount of tribute in 945. The Drevlians responded poorly to this and murdered Igor, apparently by bending two birch trees over, tying one of Igor's legs to each, then allowing them to straighten, ripping him in half. News of her husband's murder would reach Kiev soon after, and Olga took over rulership of Kievan Rus as Queen Regent, until her infant son was old enough to rule himself. It is likely that Olga had previously fulfilled the role of Regent when her husband was away on military campaigns, so her ascension as temporary ruler made sense. However, she would have little time to process recent events before a band of 20 Drevlian messengers arrived by boat with a seemingly bizarre proposal. Their leader, a man by the name of Mal, who was now styling himself as Prince Mal, a title that served to declare Drevlian independence from the Kievan Rus, and that placed them on equal footing with Princess Olga, proposed that Olga resolve the whole situation by marrying him. The reasoning behind this bold claim is unclear. Some historians have argued that his murdering of Igor went to Mal's head, and that he believed he could intimidate Olga into marrying him, a marriage that would make him the effective ruler of Kievan Rus. The possibility that this was a serious proposal can be further reinforced by the highly sexist nature of society at the time. Mal may have regarded Olga as a weak-minded and weak-willed woman who, in her grief at the death of her husband, would be willing to throw herself into the arms of the first big, strong man that came by, even if said man had murdered her, hus her husband. However, it is also possible that the Drevlians appreciated the power disparity between themselves and the Kievan Rus, and that this proposal constituted something of a bold opening proposal to ultimately resolve the situation between them. Regardless, Olga resolved not only to refuse the Drevlians' offer, but to crush them. Many chroniclers and historians have portrayed Olga's upcoming actions against the Drevlians as the actions of a grief-stricken, vengeful widow. And while it is possible that Olga was truly saddened and angered by the death of her husband, it is also a somewhat sexist and reductionist perspective to take. As we will see, Olga was an extremely intelligent person, and she would have understood the potential ramifications of allowing the Drevlians to get away with murdering her husband. Much of Kievan Rus was made up of Slavic tribes like the Drevlians, who were only just recently subjugated by their Scandinavian Rus rulers, and would have been more than happy to cast off their yoke. If the Drevlians were not punished severely for their actions, these tribes would sense weakness, and Olga could quickly find herself dealing with the wholesale disintegration of Kievan Rus. Olga's first move was against the Drevlian messengers, and would serve to display her resolve to the people of Kiev. She told the messengers that she found the proposal pleasing, but that she would prefer to formally accept their proposal the next day, once the arrangements had been made to properly honour them. The next day, the people of Kiev carried the Drevlian messengers through the streets of Kiev towards Olga's court in their boat. The Drevlians apparently regarded this as a great honour, and must have been rather shocked and confused when their boat and its occupants were thrown into a deep trench that Olga had ordered dug the night before. Olga then ordered the people of Kiev 
to fill in the trench, burying the Drevlian messengers alive. Apparently at some point during the morbid process, Olga herself appeared at the lip of the trench and sarcastically asked the messengers whether they found the honour to their taste. Having made her position on the Drevlian matter clear to her people, Olga then moved to cripple the Drevlian leadership. Before news could leak out of the fate of the messengers, Olga sent a message to Prince Mal, asking that he send his most distinguished men, likely meaning members of the Drevlian nobility and Mal's best warriors, to escort her to, from Kiev to Mal's court, the implication being that she was prepared to agree to his offer. Mal eagerly agreed, sending the requested band of notables to Kiev to collect Olga. Upon arriving in Kiev, and presumably before they had time to ask around town about that freshly filled pit in front of Olga's court, Olga invited the Drevlian notables to clean themselves off after their long journey, granting them the honour of using her own bathhouse to do so. The Drevlian notables accepted her offer of a good old-fashioned Slavic steam bath, and given the great heat generated in these bathhouses, it may have taken them a while to realise that soon after entering, Olga had ordered the building set alight. The Drevlians were unable to escape and were burned alive. Shortly after her latest act of mass murder, Olga left Kiev with a retinue of warriors bound for the lands of the Drevlians. Olga had a message sent ahead to Prince Mal, asking that they allow her to see her husband's body in their capital city of Iskorosten, the modern-day Ukrainian city of Koristan, and that they prepare great quantities of mead, an alcoholic drink for those who don't know, for the pagan funeral feast that would be held in his honour. It is reasonable to think that the Drevlians were starting to become a bit suspicious of Olga, given the disappearance of the two diplomatic missions they had sent to Kiev previously, but it seems that the implied offer of marriage for Olga was dangling in front of Prince Mal's face was too tempting for him to engage over much in critical thinking, and as a result, he agreed to Olga's requests. Olga presumably put on a great distraught widow display in front of what was left of her husband's body, putting the Drevlians, a triumphant Prince Mal likely amongst them, at ease, and began to drink the mead they had prepared. Apparently, there may have been up to 5,000 Drevlian nobles and warriors present at Igor's funeral feast, and it is certainly plausible that amidst the chaos of the celebration, the extremely conservative drinking of Olga's armed retinue could have gone unnoticed. When Olga deemed the Drevlians drunk enough, she ordered her retinue to begin slaughtering the Drevlians, most of whom would have been too inebriate to defend themselves. Before the news of the massacre could spread to the surviving Drevlian leadership, Olga fled back to Kiev, where she marshaled an army to crush the Drevlians once and for all. With their leadership decimated, and most of their best warriors murdered, the Drevlians could do little to stop Olga's army. She rolled over their cities until Iskorsten itself was under siege. After a year-long siege, Olga offered the beleaguered, starving Drevlians the opportunity to discuss terms of surrender. Olga offered the Drevlians an opportunity to save their lives by agreeing to submit to her rule, returning themselves to their position as subjects of Kievan Rus. 
The Drevlians were initially very sceptical about her offer. By this point, they had discovered just how deceitful and ruthless Olga was, and expressed their concerns that Olga's offer was simply meant to make the Drevlians drop their guard, and give Olga an opportunity to slaughter them. According to the Russian Chronicles, Olga put them at ease by stating that given the great suffering her military campaign had inflicted upon the Drevlians, she would accept, as her newly loyal Drevlian subjects, a token first tribute. A mere three pigeons and three sparrows from each house in Iskorsten. The Drevlians accepted her strange and generous offer, presenting her with the birds shortly afterwards. That evening, Olga presented the birds to her soldiers, and ordered that they tie a single piece of sulphur, or some other small piece of flammable material, to the legs of the birds. At nightfall, Olga ordered the birds to be ignited and released. The birds, terrified by the fires attached to them, instinctively fled back to their nests in Iskorsten, sending the entire city up in flames. Those Drevlians who managed to escape the flames were killed or enslaved by Olga's men. At this point, it is worth reiterating that while Olga's life is much more heavily chronicled than many of the other early Russian Rurikid rulers, the principal sources documenting her life, such as the Russian Primary Chronicle, and the Byzantine accounts of Leo the Deacon were written after her death, and likely contain inaccuracies and exaggerations. As a result, the story of Olga and the birds is quite likely to have been a fabrication or a misunderstanding on the part of the chroniclers. While it is perfectly possible that Olga had Iskorsten burned, the famous burning birds may have been analogous for fire arrows, which may have been utilised by Rus archers to ignite the city. A far more simple and logical approach to destroying the city than an elaborate scheme that relied on the birds instinctively returning to the city once they had been ignited as opposed to just scattering to the seven winds. Also, in case anyone's curious, Olga's campaign against the Drevlians did not completely exterminate them. Olga had accepted the surrender of several Drevlian cities during her military campaign, and the surviving Drevlians would become subjects of Kievan Rus once more, Olga's actions having left them a shadow of their former selves, however. They would never fully recover from Olga's campaign, either with the use of the name Drevlian falling out of use in Russian chronicles not long after her death. Olga's actions against the Drevlians unsurprisingly cemented her position as regent of Kievan Rus. She had avenged Prince Igor, and had displayed her ruthless intellect in the process. She would spend the rest of her reign effectively governing and reforming Kievan Rus. Olga established centres of administration throughout Kievan Rus called Pogosti, that allowed Olga to more effectively centralise power and control the various lucrative trade routes that ran through Kievan Rus. Notably, given how her husband died, Olga did away with the old method of gathering tribute from subjugated tribes that demanded the presence of the ruler of Kievan Rus. This job was instead delegated to regional tax collectors, who were tasked with collecting specific amounts of tribute at specific times in specific years. 
This had the triple function of allowing the monarch to focus on other matters than tribute collecting, not putting them at risk if tribute collection got ugly, and finally, ensuring that subjects would know exactly when and how much tribute they were expected to pay, removing the, some of the ambiguity and potential for abuse that could see them rebel in protest. This form of legal taxation was the first of its kind in Eastern Europe, and would form the basis of the Ruskaya Pravda, the legal code written in the early 11th century that would guide the governance of Kievan Rus and its successor states until the end of the 15th century. The most notable event of Olga's post-Drevlian revolt rule, and the reason she would become known as Russia's first saint, was her conversion to Orthodox Christianity in either 955 or 957 AD. Her exact motivations for converting to Christianity are unclear. The proximity of the Christian Orthodox Byzantine Empire in Greece and Anatolia meant that Kievan Rus had seen Christian missionaries present in the princedom since the mid-9th century. Diplomatic documents signed by members of the Kievan Rus nobility during the rule of Prince Igor demonstrated that these missionaries had seen some success in proselytizing to the nobility, but until Olga, they had seemingly had no success in swaying the ruling family. While it is certainly possible that Olga converted out of a genuine, newfound faith, it has also been theorised that her conversion may have been motivated in part, or possibly even in whole, by a desire to form closer relations with the Byzantine Empire and negotiate preferable terms with Byzantine traders. While Byzantine chronicles claim that Olga was baptised in Kiev in 955, her true baptism, quote-unquote, took place in 957 AD, amidst great pomp and ceremony in the Byzantine capital of Constantinople, with Olga taking the Christian name Helena, which, by the way, I'll just keep using her Olga name, just to keep things simple going forward, and accepting the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII as her godfather. There are two famous stories that came out of her baptism at Constantinople. The first and most plausible is that the sheer amount of pomp, ceremony and negotiations regarding future relations between Kievan Rus and the Byzantines saw Olga stuck in Constantinople for a whole year. This apparently annoyed Olga to no end, and when Olga later received a message from, from Emperor Constantine inquiring why formally agreed upon gifts from her were running late, she sent a message back mocking him, suggesting he would receive his gifts once he had come and waited in Kiev for a year. The second, far less plausible story is that as part of her conversion, Emperor Constantine planned to pressure Olga into marrying him, giving him the kind of influence over Kiev and Rus the Drevlians had tried to achieve. That, and apparently Olga continued to look pretty good in her older years. Russian chronicles of this wacky escapade recount how Olga saw Constantine's advances coming and managed to outsmart him, pointing out after her baptism that his new status as her godfather would result in a marriage between them, constituting spiritual incest. There are two major reasons why this whole episode is likely a complete fabrication. Firstly, even if we assume Olga was born in 925, 
This would make her at least 32 at the time of her baptism in 957. Her marriage value, read ability to have children, would have been dropping off at this point, and her son Stanislav was fast approaching maturity, leaving Constantine a very limited window to exercise any kind of meaningful power over Kievan Rus as Olga's husband. Secondly, and more importantly, Constantine was already married to Empress Helena Lecapene. Not only is polygamy not a thing in Orthodox Christianity, but Constantine was more of a scholar than an emperor, with him leaving much of the day-to-day -day running of the empire to his wife, making her an extremely powerful and influential woman, not the kind that could be divorced and set aside without major consequences. Upon Olga's return from Constantinople, she built several churches in Kiev, Peskov, and elsewhere. The fact that the still largely pagan people of Kievan Rus took a dim view to Christianity meant that Olga did not try and establish her new faith as any kind of official state religion. She did try and convince her son Stanislav to convert, but the future prince refused, stating that his pagan vassals would not take him seriously if he became a Christian. Interestingly, in 959 AD, Olga would send a diplomatic embassy to Germany to meet with the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, Otto I. As part of this diplomatic mission, Olga gave the go-ahead for Catholic missionaries to proselytize in Kievan Rus. This is a rather strange decision on Olga's part given the ongoing rivalry between Catholic and Orthodox Christianity. This event could display Olga's ignorance of the meaningfulness of the split between the two churches, or perhaps her continued frustration with the lack of enthusiasm for Christianity in Kievan Rus saw her employing the aid of, well, anyone uh, who was willing in religiously converting uh, the people of Kievan Rus. Ultimately, these Catholic missionaries would be expelled by her son, Prince Stanislav, when he assumed power in 960. Olga would continue to play a prominent role in the governance of Kievan Rus. Stanislav was frequently away on military campaigns, leaving his mother in Kiev to govern the princedom in his absence. Notably, in 968 AD, Kiev would be besieged by the Pechenegs, one of Stanislav's many rivals, while he was away campaigning in Bulgaria. Olga would successfully lead the defence of the city, and following the Pechenegs' retreat, would send a strongly worded message to her son, scolding him for neglecting his princedom and his children with his constant foreign adventures. Speaking of Stanislav's children, of which he had three sons, there is a great deal of speculation about the relationship between Olga and her grandchildren. Given their father's constant warring, it is safe to assume they enjoyed a closer relationship with Olga than their father, and it is suspected that this close relationship bred in them sympathies for their grandmother's Christian faith. Olga would die a year after the siege of Kiev, with her son reluctantly allowing her to be buried in a Christian ceremony and disallowing any pagan funeral feasts in her honour. Her body would ultimately be entombed in Kiev, 
a tomb that would be sadly destroyed in 1240 AD when Mongol forces under the leadership of Batu Khan sacked Kiev during their conquest of Russia. The religious influence that Olga may have had over her grandchildren did not take long to manifest itself following her death. The eldest son of Stanislav, Yaropolk I, who became the Prince of Kievan Rus following his father's death in 972 AD, is suspected of having secretly converted to Catholicism in 973 AD. This is based off the 11th century writings of the French monk Adamar de Canabrans, no clue if I pronounced that right, and the Italian monk Peter Damien, both of whom claim that in 973 the famed missionary bishop St. Bruno of Querfurt successfully converted a Rus king. If Yaropolk ever planned on openly embracing his secret faith, he was denied the opportunity when his younger brother Vladimir murdered him and seized the throne. Vladimir would go on to become the first openly Christian prince of Kievan Rus in 988 AD. I went over in detail Vladimir's apparent motivations for conversion, his Christianization of Kievan Rus, and his eventual ascension to sainthood in my Russia's Viking Origins video, so I won't repeat myself here. Olga would ultimately be recognised as a saint herself in 1547 AD by the Russian Orthodox Church in acknowledgement of her status as the first Christian ruler of a Russian state and the deeply Christian life she lived after her conversion. By the way, short little uh, note on this. The, basically the way that the Orthodox Churches acknowledge or recognize saints, however you want to put it, is it, it's not as formal and quote-unquote evidence-based as the Catholic method, but you might be familiar with, you know, gathering evidence and like uh, canonization and, you know, all that, all that stuff. In the Orthodox tradition, the recognition of saints, oh, saints, is based more on essentially local legend, essentially, where after a person's death, who's considered particularly holy, local people will venerate said person, basically praying to God through them. And eventually, if a person is considered uh, famous enough, a synod of bishops will be called where they decide whether this person is worthy to be declared a saint. Again, fairly straightforward, in informal process there. And in the case of St. Olga, she was actually considered so significant by the Russian Orthodox Church uh, that she actually holds the title of Istapolitos. Again, not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Or equal to the apostles, putting her up there with Jesus' own companions in, in holiness. St. Olga, who would never remarry, follow her husband Igor's death, would ultimately become the patron saint of both converts and widows. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Just a short quick one here, and as I said, I've had a lot of real life stuff to be getting on with recently. Uh, I'm going to see whether I can maybe get out next week's episode a bit earlier than usual as a sort of a bit of an apology on my part. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join me in the future for more Raids into History.